Welcome to episode 27 of Land the Plane Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Land the Plane Podcast. My name is Dustin. I'm Jonathan. And we are back at it tonight. I keep saying tonight and today and stuff. It is, whenever you're Doesn't listening really to it, that's when we're back at yeah. it. All right. So uh, we are here back listening to the, the dog just knock my drink off the table. One day, Jonathan, you're going to get this dog under control. I hope yeah. So. I hope so. Sure. I'm going to try that. For all you people out there that love dogs, it just knocked over my drink. So thank you. Thank you, Willow. Thank you. Anyways, so back to it. We're excited to be back together tonight. Just a couple of guys talking Jesus, talking scripture, trying to talk about faith, uh, where we're at in our walk, and just uh, really trying to figure out this thing called life. Whether you're a new believer, long-time believer, non-believer, we hope you can listen tonight and get something out of it. So we're here. And tonight, Jonathan, we're going to uh, just jump right into Tonight this or today. Yeah, whatever. I can't stop saying tonight. We're going to jump right into it, though, because we have a special guest with us tonight. Jonathan, you want to introduce our special guest? I will. Um, And anybody that that listened to our last episode on mentors, uh, I talked about Robert Sterling. And uh, that is... is, (laughs) The dog is attacking Destin. It won't leave me alone. It took my drink. Somebody get the dog. Okay, got it. Um, uh, I mentioned Robert Sterling, and that is actually who we are um, being joined by. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome. Hi, y'all. Welcome, Robert. <laughs> that was him. Uh, and we got, we basically what we're, we're doing, we're going to let Robert tell you a little bit about himself in just a second. But we are here tonight, and we got a request from one of our listeners to talk about a subject that's very, very big in today's world. Talk about, oh, that word evolution and all that kind of stuff and how it works and how's it compared to the Bible and all that kind of stuff. And Robert is our expert tonight, right? Cause he's the only one we could afford anyway. <laughs> Wait, this pays. Exactly. That's why we can afford it. That's why we can afford it. <laughs> gotcha. So why don't you tell the, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, what you're here to do. Okay. Well, uh, like I said, my name is Robert Sterling and, uh, I grew up going to church, uh, single mom I started going to church but wasn't uh, wasn't a follower until I was about 22 and so my life was really kind of uh, you know said I was Christian didn't really didn't really look like one um, when I got into college I became a biology major and I got really involved with a lot of uh, uh, things that were going on I got hooked up got good relationships with all of my major professors but as it turns out all of my major professors were atheists. Um, I got into uh, paleontology, and one of my professors, uh, Dr. Preston, kind of, uh, I guess, thought I had promise and invited me to join one of his uh, research groups. And so we went in the field. It was a grad graduate research group, and he was working on something to be published, and I was get to be a part of it, and I really looked up to these guys. And then somewhere through this process, I got, uh, I got saved, which was a good thing. Uh, radically saved, and yet it didn't take me long to begin to realize that there was a little tension uh, between the what I was knew the Bible said and between what I was being taught as just assumed as fact uh, in all of our studies. And so, after a while, that tension just grew more and more and more. And you know, I've never met a dinosaur, didn't know who Darwin was. I've read about him, I'd heard about him. But what kind of paleontologist are you if you've never met a dinosaur? Well, apparently, I, I haven't been in Jurassic Park, so I don't know. <laughs> I met a dinosaur once. It was Barney. Barney. <laughs> <laughs> well, my... <laughs> right. I'm here for derailing comic book I got you. That's how this, that's that's how this works. That's my role in the podcast. Okay. That's how this works. Yep. Um, so it didn't take me long to realize that there was a tension there. But like I said, I, I'd, I'd never met a dinosaur, and I, I'd never met Darwin, but I had met Jesus. And so my answer to the problem was simply change my major to business where nobody talks about evolution. If they do, it's the evolution of profits and the life scale, you know, the life cycle of a business model and things of that nature. And but after a while the conversation kept coming up. There was always this tension. And so years later, 
I just kind of set myself on a path to do some, I'm not going to call it scientific research, just research into what is out there and what it actually says and what the truth is. And is there a legitimate answer to this tension? And what I found out happily was that there is an answer. There's quite a few answers, in fact, um, but you don't hear about them in the general public. Yeah, I guess. I mean, this is a, a major thing in the world today. When you go to school, you go to your classes, science books, all talk about evolution, evolution theory, world created through Big Bang, all this stuff. Try to lay out this idea of what is done. And we know if you've been in the Bible for spending time in Genesis, that those two things don't seem to match up. Where where what Genesis tells us. And so it, I think it'd be a natural for anybody, especially young folks, to be in that situation of questioning, well, which one am I supposed to believe? You know? mm-hmm. Well, especially since you only hear um, the Bible on Sunday. The average person doesn't spend uh, tons of time, even if they study it, they stu- study it a little bit in the morning. But you've been inundated in school and in the public sphere with this um, evolution as fact, and all of its parts are unquestionable in your children's movies, in every documentary you've ever seen, in every National Geographic show you ever see. It's just talked about so much uh, that you're indoctrinated with it, even if you don't realize it. Yeah, absolutely. And it it ends up being a... um, you know, God versus science, yes, kind of debate, yes, and which I I find is kind of interesting because if you know, science is kind of the kind of searching out for truth, truth and knowledge, mm-hmm. um, and through a through a specific set of you know, kind of a methodology, that kind of thing. But the but the ultimate goal, I think, of any scientist is to somehow arrive at, at knowledge and truth, and it you know, if it's true then it's not going to be contradicting God because he is truth, everything about God. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just that science changes because our understanding changes. (laughs) So science is not necessarily truth, but our understanding or the, at that point in time, understanding of truth. Um, Just like used to, everybody believed that the earth was the center of the universe and the earth is flat. Of course, some people, Starting to believe that again. Making a comeback. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, obviously we've been wrong in the past. Mm-hmm. So I don't have any fear of science, actual truth, having any any contradiction with God. And I think as any as Christians, we don't need to be worried about the current, um, you know, the current ideas that are out there and all those kind of things. I think given enough time, they're eventually going to lead back to God. If they keep making yes. discoveries and discoveries and discoveries and discoveries, that's generally what happens. Um, but in the meantime, I think we need to we need to know, and and I think especially with our kids and that kind of thing, we need to be able to at least speak somewhat intelligently about this subject in such a way that we're not, um, you know, antagonistic or anything like that, but also don't sound like idiots because that's that's generally what we can find. Um, when we when we start talking about things that we really don't know what we're talking about, then we start sounding dumb. So yeah. we wanted we wanted to be able to to talk about this intelligently. So that's why you're here. <laughs> it's like Waterboy when he's like, "Mama says I'm alligators angry because I got them teeth and no toothbrush." <laughs> That's what you don't want to be that. Yeah, guy. It's, it's exactly that way. But you know, and we're going to turn it over to Robert because Robert <laughs> Robert's going to going to educate us all tonight. But. You know, and you said something there, Jonathan, I just wanted to echo too, is it feels like science's purpose is to disprove God. I mean, that's the way the earth, the world makes it feel right now, that if you are interested in the science or you want to follow science, it's almost like you have to not believe in God. And I really think, like you said, is, is the more you dig into science and the truth of science and not just all the theories— that I think you see God more at the end of the day. And it's okay to to be a Christian and a believer in Jesus, but yet still love science, right? I mean... Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, it's kind of funny that, um, you know, the Bible tells us that if you look at the heavens declare his handiwork, that in, in Romans one eighteen, you know, it talks about how everything you need to know about God can be seen clearly through creation, his divine attributes and his nature. 
uh, can be seen. And so you would expect that if you look intently into it, but when you look, when you intentionally try to separate it, I think it was Galileo that once said that uh, basically science tells us how the heavens go, but not how to go to heaven. And so that that's one of three views. Um, there's there's three views in this world of, of theism and, and science. There's the, there's the that they work together. There's that they are separate and address totally different things. And then there's this view that they kind of overlap, but they don't always address the same things. And, and I, I tend toward the, the first and the last, you know, that they, they mesh, but the science addresses things the Bible does not. It doesn't mean that the Bible's false. It just means the, the Bible doesn't address everything that we seek to see or to look for in science, mm-hmm. at least not in specifics. Yeah, for instance, I mean, the, the Bible doesn't explain how chlorophyll in a plant produces energy for that plant. Exactly. Right. But the Bible was never written to be in a, a history book of how the world was created as much as it was. It was written to be a book that glorifies God and why we're in need of a creator and a savior and all that. I mean, so it, its purpose never was that, I don't think, to clearly define every single thing that happened to get us to the point we are. No, it was... Um the, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture basically tells us that the Bible tells you everything you need to know, not everything you want to know. And so it, it, we call it a written record of God's revelation of Himself, okay? And so we also call it a record of God's revelation because it's a, it, it's, it's a record of how He revealed Himself to certain people at a certain time. But as you read it, He's revealing Himself to you also, and so it is meant to tell you why you were created and your purpose, who you owe your creation to. And that's why those first 11 chapters of the Bible are so important, because they're the most hotly debated. They're the ones that bring about all the contention between what we might call you know, the Bible and science, or theism versus science. Um, and yet they're the ones that, as Christians, we're tempted to give up, because we don't think—we we think science— says things. You ever heard anybody say, well, you know, doesn't science say? Mm -hmm. Well, science doesn't say anything. Mm -hmm. But we've been sort of indoctrinated to believe that science is one viewpoint that is in total agreement and it says things to us. It, this, you know, inanimate, authoritative creature speaks to us and we can't oppose it. The science is really just a method of observing the world around you and drawing conclusions, but those conclusions come from humans with a worldview bent. And so you can tell what somebody's underlying presuppositions are by where they, how they present, and what they present, and even how they word it. And unfortunately, that's where the bulk of what science supposedly says to us comes from. Yeah. All right, so I I guess a good place to start might be with Darwin, because you know, he's kind of the one that came came up with all of this stuff originally. Um, so, <clears throat> I believe there are there's kind of two separate sides of of what Darwin kind of proposed. Uh, one being natural selection, um, that kind of idea, and then there's kind of origin of the species, like actually where we came from or how we developed, all the way back to beginning, you know, kind of beginning of time where life came from. Um, would you want to kind of explain what each of those are? Maybe start with the, the natural selection type side, and or either one, however you want to say that. Well, basically, they're, they're two sides of the same coin, because one of them is the method by which the other occurred. Okay, so the natural selection is, uh, according to Darwin, you have to understand, Darwin was, was researching and writing in the mid to late 1800s. So what was known about the internal body was a little bit limited. Um, and so, you know, we all know about his Galapagos Island adventure where he's noticing animals and their variations. And so he, he uses a method that he developed called viracausa, which means when you're trying to figure out what caused that, why were the finches on this island this way and the finches on this island this way? Why are the tortoises over here have their shells this way, but the tortoises over here have their little stretched up shells? And, and so he says, you, you have to look for things that can cause. And so what he theorized that is that chemical variations within the body would bring about, as a, as a result of either outside stress or just natural variations, would bring about some, 
who had characteristics that were better for survival. And naturally, those would survive more, therefore they would reproduce more. And the ones that had characteristics, you know, if the fruit's all six feet off the ground, short people are going to have a hard time, right? So over time, you're going to have a race of tall people because the fruit's six foot tall and short people just don't get as much of it. Tall people get to it first, and then it's even taller. And so this is kind of the concept that— And, and, and in a, I mean, that's—I mean, at its yeah. base, most basic form, what he observed— Makes sense. Makes sense. Makes and sense. over time, yeah, short people on an island with all tall fruit mm-hmm. that definitely have problem. It's yes. more fitted for the older, for the taller people. Yep. That's not necessarily like genetic origin or anything, but it's it's just adaptation and all those kind of things. Yes, but the origin of the species where he took that was to go all the way back to uh, common ancestry. And now, now Darwin never... Uh, never even addressed the origin of life itself. He sort of presupposed that. Um, so he goes back to how we, seeing that they get better and that it would increase their survivability so they would get better, then he, he supposed that it went all the way back to a, you know, a single-celled organism or, or one simple organism and that all organisms came from that. So that origin of the species, that the species branch out and become different species from other parent species, so to speak. And then the weaker ones die out and you get new versions uh, that go into it. So there's, there's one is the, the outcome and one is the method or the cause that goes along with it. Okay. So that is, that's kind of Darwin's theory Mm -hmm. Um, based on, you know, if we, if we looked at how much we know about, cell structure and and kind of molecular biology and all of those kind of things now compared to what Darwin knew about those things then. I mean, how far have we, how far have we kind of come? (laughs) Well, well, you know, in Darwin's time, uh, somewhere through there, the general understanding was that a cell was both simple and the smallest form. Um, Of course, we know now that's not the case. A, a, A single cell is an entire living structure complete with a a method for feeding itself and processing food and excluding waste and reproducing itself. And it has uh, all different functions, specialized functions for different things. And and then it works in conjunction with all of the rest of the cells. And so within that, it it wasn't until 1952 that we sort of, I'm not going to say discovered, but illuminated the concept of a couple of researchers the uh, human gene or the genome and began to understand that was when these guys were like, hey, this thing is pieced together with these little four bits, this rows of, of two by two that run down the center. And this is what uh, uh, is kind of the foundation or the, the builder of all of these proteins that go into the construction of everything that controls which proteins are made and which ones are turned on and which ones are turned off. And that would have been totally and completely lost on on Darwin, he would have. To him, it was just um, chemical variations in the way things formed and grew, brought about natural variables mm-hmm. that could be selected for. But he didn't have. He he had no concept of like DNA structure no. and all those kind of things, which is oh. actually what um, kind of is is the programming for everything about us. Exactly. And so basically what you're looking at is even Darwin's view is a little outdated. Um, Today we call it neo-Darwinian theory or evolutionary theory or even the new atheism, which is uh, uh, very similar. But the primary difference is as we began to understand the complexity of the cell and what was there, um, everybody kind of uh, instinctively knew you had to come up with a better solution. And so the, the modern driving force is um, random mutations, unguided. If you, if you look, talk to Richard Dawkins or somebody else, you're, you're going to find out that it's, it's random, unguided mutations selected for by natural selection that leads to all of this, this growth and this, this movement and these things. And so, um, you know, for me, I needed to grow in my own faith. I needed to grow... Uh, in my ability to help my kids and my family and then other people. Well, uh, recently I was introduced to something called uh, information theory. 
Now, information theory is something that we get uh, really well. It's, uh, you know, if you go, uh, a good example is if you go to the, oh, an, an ancient stone inscribed, like the Rosetta Stone. I think it's got three languages on it. You go to the Rosetta Stone. Are you going to think that those words and that information just happen to get there through natural causes? I'm going to go with no. Yeah, you're not. Because you're the first thing you're going to recognize is that those words have a, a purpose and a function. Those letters have a purpose and a function, and they're organized into something. You may not know what it says or what it means, but you recognize it as language. And what is the only thing that we know of that creates language? I would say add people or or possibly higher kind of higher and yes. higher mammals some sort of an intelligent mind you got to have a mind to get functional information that performs uh th- that conveys information or knowledge or performs a function and so what i began to understand was that uh this this concept of information theory and i don't even know who who came up with it first but the guy that i listened to and i recommend you uh, his name is Stephen C. Meyer, and he's a proponent of what's called intelligent design at the Discovery Institute. Um, he wrote a book called uh, Darwin's Doubt, wrote another one called um, Signature in the Cell. Um, I believe he's a, a Christian, but in terms of worldview, he supports, he's a proponent of, of uh, in, uh, intelligent design. Uh, so anyway... He, as he talks about this, he's the last person I listened to on this. What he's trying to explain is that what can be noticed is that all of those DNA that are the building blocks for everything, um, they function like a code. If you change one small part, okay, it can be like a, a child with Down syndrome. They just have an extra one. And they're, we wouldn't say they're naturally selected for better success in life. In fact, in, in Denmark, they've, you know, abort. 99% of them as a result of finding out that they have this this thing and it's just a it's just either a mutation or a variant in their genetic structure they have a little bit of extra uh, DNA um, and so these things this information here has to be organized in a function a lot like well what did you used to do for a living programming programming computer programming programming have you ever had to debug a line of code it's terrible <laughs> Especially when it's something that somebody else has written. When somebody else wrote it and you have to but but here's the presupposition. You know it was put there for a reason, right? And you know it conveys knowledge or performs a function. Yes. But for some reason it's not working and you have to find the problem. Mm-hmm. Right? So if something happens and uh, a a bad piece of code gets accidentally inserted, what's the net effect on the whole thing? Uh, if the code is, I mean, if the code is ran and it's an incorrect piece of code, I mean, you you mess up your output. Whatever yes. you're trying to do is is wrong. Yeah, if it doesn't shut down the whole thing. Yeah, but it will definitely mess up your output. 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 That too. That too. Um, but this concept of information theory has to do with how everything has to be programmed. Okay, you don't. You put something in the computer, you get something out. Right now, you're gonna you're working on your computer, putting stuff in it, and then when you're done, you're gonna get an edited podcast that goes out. Well, if you put the wrong stuff in, you get the wrong stuff out. And so, this information theory, and we've done that before too. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that happens. Episode one. <laughs> Good example. Well, here's the thing. Richard Dawkins was quoted once at saying that biology is the study of things that have the appearance of design and purpose without the reality of design and purpose. And so he was acknowledging that if you look at a DNA uh, strand and how it's laid out, it has a code. And unless that code is put there, that's an organized code that has to be in a certain form to accomplish a certain task in conjunction with all of the other things, well, how do you go about changing that one piece accidentally and making it something better? Yeah. I mean, let me ask you Especially this. Especially in something as complex as DNA. I mean, it's re- anything. It's ridiculously complex. And even the, if I'm not mistaken, are, I mean, there's certain building blocks and certain patterns of those building blocks, but those building blocks are even made up of smaller pieces. Yes, amino acids. Amino acids. Amino acids, acids, acids going to form together. the proteins. Yeah. 
And so this is one of those things. The, the point is that when you look at it, um, Meyer began to read about uh, uh, Darwin. And Darwin and his mentor proposed this concept that they utilize called the vera causa. It just means uh, basically it's a proposed or, or, or projected cause. When you look at something, you're trying to figure out how it came into being. Okay, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Dustin, okay, and his kids walk in the room. Well, how did they come into being? Well, it's not gee, that kind of show, Robert. It's I know it's not that kind of show, <laughs> but we, we know what sort of thing occurs to create children. And so we can propose a cause. You know automatically by what you're looking at that there's a cause. Well, Darwin proposed an unguided, um, accidental, random cause. Even with the complexity now, it's still an unguided, random cause. Um, but, so Meyer looks at what Darwin says, and he says, you know what? You know what the only thing known to man that produces information that conveys knowledge or performs a purpose? A mind. And so that's when he became this uh, staunch proponent of intelligent design that he began to look at and research and see. But what he was really struck by is the fact that in the media and on TV and the, the outspoken proponents like Bill Nye, the science doofus, and, um, and, and you know the angry atheist Richard Dawkins and people like that, but all of these people are not true scientific researchers. They're just folks like you and me that may have a biology degree and, and may know some, but they've just read. Mm-hmm. They don't know anything. But they push really, really hard for things. But what he began to notice was that the people who actually do the research, who get the grants and spend the money and get published in peer-reviewed articles, they know that the theory, you know, Darwinian theory of evolution no longer answers the question because unguided random uh, mutations cannot produce something good and beneficial in a complex organism. Mm-hmm. And, so, it, and you were saying like earlier today too, in like along with that, that they can't produce mutations and things, and and the, like just from selective um, natural selection, those kind of things, they can't produce something that's that's not already coded for. Yes, that it's, that it's negative. You you can take things away, but adding stuff to that, then you're just it's like you're adding to the code. Like if, you know, programming code or whatever, you're adding new stuff in there. I mean, I can go in and, and delete sections and some things still work or whatever, but nothing's just going to suddenly add new stuff to the code. And that's the concept of information theory is that if, if information to convey something or produce something is the foundation of all life and all changes and all variability, then where does that come from? Well, since the proposition is random accidents, okay? Imagine if you had to write a line of code, one line of code to fit in with an existing program and you had to do it by accident. Like you had a, a, you know, a, a ball full of code things and you had to shake it and see what popped up and put it in there. Nope, that one doesn't work. We're going to shake it again, random, stick it in there. The, the mathematical reason that this doesn't work is because for every right line of code, how many wrong ones are there? Yeah, all the rest of them. All the rest of them are wrong. And it doesn't just have to be a random line of code that does something. It has to be a random line of code that does something in conjunction with all of the other lines of code. And in order to meet the criteria, it's got to be better. Mm-hmm. Well, how many accidents do you have that are better might happen sometimes, but we're talking about something that happens with zero guidance. Okay, I have to ask you this because I'm a simple dude. Okay, mm-hmm. and um, what we're talking about here is the idea that of of evolution of the body changing, such to, or even developing from single cell organisms, wherever they say the base of human life comes from. For that to happen, for the, the, the changes in DNA that would have to take place, for that to happen, the chances of it happening wrong are so much greater than it ever happening right? Is that, I mean, to, to actually to, to, to yes. buy into this idea of, of we evolve from something else, that 
all these situations that would have to go exactly right by chance, by accident, to get us to where we are now. Yes. Uh, Meyer quotes a, he calls it a colleague that uh, did some work at Cambridge, a mathematician that was working on this stuff. And basically he said, if you take one of the very, very simple sections of DNA strand to make a simple um, protein, okay, to turn out something simple, this maybe got, you know, like 150 uh, amino acids or whatever. I can't remember exactly how he described it. And he said, this guy spent years working on some of this math. And he said, you know, it's not like one to the 12th um, or one to the 20th or, you know, what he said was it would, if you took all of the atoms in the Milky Way and you had uh, a trillion Milky Ways and you went in and you, and you accidentally found one right marked atom. He said, we're not talking about a magnitude of a little bit unlikely. Like, I'm going to gamble on the horses and I got a 20% chance of winning. What he was saying is it's mathematically impossible. And then when he added to it was an understanding that um, there's not enough that the, the you know, three to four billion years that life has supposedly existed, there's not enough atoms that have ever existed for us to accidentally find one of those. And so what we're talking about for all of uh, everything that goes on in, in, in the animal kingdom, we're talking about billions upon billions upon billions of positive, beneficial, random, random mutations that happen to be better and that we're selected for. Yeah, and we're yet, not talking about we're not talking about short people versus tall people. No, we're talking about no tiny, legs. We're talking yeah. about going from a single cell to, oh, now it has ears. Oh, now yes. it has eyes. Oh, now it has, I mean, and, and yeah, I've never even thought, sit down and thought about how many billions of mutations you have to have to get from single cell to human, but then add on top of that single cell to bird, to dino, to, mm-hmm. you know, all of these other things, um, man alive. Yeah. It, yeah, it, it it really doesn't really seem like billions of years is long enough. No, and here's the the point that he's trying to make is that, like, for folks like us, we're just trying to strengthen our faith, help our children learn how to think critically in this world, um, and then learn how to converse with other people who have who have the same struggle. So the the point that um. I guess what I'm, uh, I'm kind of pointing at right this particular minute is the fact that the people who do this research know there are problems with this. Meyer said two years ago he went to a, a big, uh, he called it it's a convention or something, where some of the smartest people in um, uh, molecular biology and uh, uh, chemical biology and historical biology got together, and the whole topic was basically looking for better answers to Darwinian theory. Because they know that it has so many holes in it, it, it it's not a legitimate answer for anything. But we, you know, I wanted to find our terms here. Um, most of us believe in changes within animals. We can see that. That's what Darwin observed. Most of us believe in some type of change over time. We know that there are no dinosaurs here anymore, and that a lot of animals have gone extinct. But we also know that some animals have changed and we can see changes because we breed dogs and we do selective breeding but the point there is that you know we're intentionally doing something with it Mm -hmm. the other thing is that nobody's ever witnessed a random mutation that was beneficial unless you manipulate it through some sort of intelligence you cannot get a positive random because it's mathematically impossible that's why nobody's ever witnessed one Mm-hmm. They just don't. We, so it, it's a theory. Yeah. Because you're saying that everything we see came about by this mechanism, but I have, but no one's ever witnessed the very, the most critical part of that mechanism. So what we're trying to do is just help. What I'm trying to do is just help encourage people to understand that you can question this. Um, you know, you may get some pushback and some kickback, and a lot of people may laugh at you. But the truth is, uh, it's not a good answer. Yeah, and it goes on farther. I mean, there's a hundred other things we can look at, but that's the foundational part. Yeah. And and really, it's 
I wonder if it's so ingrained that any kind of pushback, even from these critical scientists, is kind of met with mm, because of the kind of the worldview agenda. You know, we don't have a creator. It has to be, you know, it has to be this way. Mm-hmm. So that way we have to look at it through these lenses. So any other possibility is is just viewed negatively to start with, even if they know that there's holes that they can't explain. Well, it's like this. If I say, hey, Jonathan, you got to, or Dustin, you got to solve this problem. What's two plus two? What's that equal? And I say, now here's your pool of choices. One, two, three. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. Spend a couple of years studying it and find the answer. Are you going to come by the right answer? No. Because the right answer was excluded from the pool of possibilities before you started. It's called methodological naturalism. It means that the assumption within the secular scientific world is that you have to exclude anything about intelligent design or theism Christianity or God or anything. Therefore, what if it was the answer? You couldn't find the right answer because you excluded it from the pool of possibilities before you ever started your research. And so it's this mindset that you can only look for natural answers that exclude really the only legitimate answer, which is a mind, or in our case, a God, the God of the Bible. Um, So yeah, it makes it a little bit tough to come by the answer when you... uh, when you exclude the possibility yep. like that. And that's why we're indoctrinated so much so with it. Um, oh, yeah. Meyer talked about one guy that uh, actually wrote about it in his book. He finally got fed up with it and wrote about in his book the, all of these questions and doubts. And he was um, taken off of Wikipedia and um, fired from his position as a library curator. Hmm. That's the kind of kickback that you yeah. get. That's how serious um, it is and how important it is that we be able to teach our kids how to think critically. Just ask the right questions. Yeah, and this this it, this topic's so interesting for me because one, you know, I was I was kind of saying stories you it, it, to the point where it was twenty years old before I even started looking for Jesus or anything like that, or it was a big part of my life. But once I once I came into my faith, I never had a big problem letting go of like the the world's teaching of creation and evolution and all that stuff because it was always a hard concept for me to follow of it just everything seems to happen by chance on accident something came out of nothing i mean how am i supposed to buy into all this stuff and then i heard the idea of a creator and to me it made sense that there there's something had to be here to to create that but i understand not everybody's that way but it's <laughs> It it takes, I guess the level is is when you think about faith, and I almost want to say it seems like it takes more faith to believe in the idea of evolution, the way you're describing it with the DNA mutations and all this stuff, and the, how many it would have to do, and the likelihoods of that happening correctly over and over and over again, all these different paths. But when it comes to the Bible, you have to believe... Your faith is founded in something that's that's supernatural, and, and we had an episode about supernatural, God being supernatural. It's not a negative word. It's not ghosts and spooky creatures. <laughs> um, you have to have that understanding with God that it's not everything is explainable, but yet we try desperately to continue to explain these other things, you know. And we, we still can't explain that either. I mean, when you get boiled down to the bottom, you can't explain it. And it's just that interesting. It is, but if you think about it, we're created in the image of God. And so God was is what? He's a creator. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I mean, Jonathan's over here creating a podcast. He creates code. You know, you work at a bank, create some wealth, hopefully for somebody, or at least help them to maintain their wealth. Wish it was me. <laughs> yeah, really, <laughs> right? Um. And so what we find is that we're we're a, we're a people we're people who create. We're inquisitive. We reflect our creator. So I don't think God faults us for being inquisitive. In fact, the the you know the people Galileo and some of the others, the people known as the father uh, fathers of of science, um, they spoke about the natural world as if it pointed to God. They not they didn't exclude him. They included. They saw overlap. They saw how one fit with the other and and mesh together. 
Um, and so it's only now that we've got we live in this world that says you have to draw this line. And you know, and like for you, you live in a world where you can say, "Yeah, hey, it's no big deal. I, I just believe this." But maybe your kids won't. Yeah. Or maybe your grandkids won't. Or maybe that person that is loved by God and, and God wants to save that you work at is really struggling with this. Or it's like I was. I mean, I was deep in it, you know, on a graduate research group with some people and, and spent all kinds of time talking about this stuff. Um, and it's very overwhelming. It's hard to be in the middle of that and not be overwhelmed by it. But then it also begins to color your view of all the other aspects of science. Like, what's the big debate in the science world now that has two big broadsides on it that we hear about in the news and politics all the time? Climate change. Climate change. Okay. And yet, Which, that's, oddly enough, used to be um, global warming. Well, I'm old enough to remember when the ice caps were getting bigger and we were headed into the next ice, ice age, age if we didn't change it. So, yeah. yeah. I can still remember that being on the evening news. Yeah, that, um, was, that was, I remember as a kid being kind of scared of the next ice age. Yes, and yeah. then it was warming, and now it's climate change. And, and the thing is, it, it's, it's settled science. But is it? Yeah, that one, that one. You want to see some debates on that one. <laughs> on, and we're talking about meteorolo- meteorologists, um, scientists, you know, all kinds that... Um, I mean, there's huge factions. I mean, even the guy that one of the main um, guys that started the Weather Channel left the Weather Channel and went out and started something else because of the the climate change issue. He was like that the Weather Channel is owned by that agenda, mm-hmm. and so he went out and started something else. And he's like, we're going to actually look at the weather, not at what people say the weather should be. So yeah, I mean, it, <clears throat> all kinds of things. Um, Science is a tool used by the people who use it to say what they want it to say for their own purposes. But God created us to be inquisitive people who enjoy, and His world is meant to declare His handiworks. So I think it honors Him when we look for Him in it. But unfortunately, we live in a world where we have to muddle through people who are obscuring the picture of our God in order to both look at Him and, and honor Him in it, and to share with them how that world that they're fearful of or scared of or that they've been taught um, represents nothing. Pointlessness, hopelessness, randomness, you know, no hope, hopelessness. That's what all it is because you're nothing but a random bag of meat with some fire and neurons. You don't even have free will because your mind is a figment of your own imagination. So, in fact, some, some, you know, neo-Darwinists think that um, there is no such thing as information. We, o- it, we, we only think it's information because that's the way we perceive it. But it doesn't actually exist. Yeah, figure that one out. <laughs> Jonathan, go. <laughs> Okie dokie. You know, I saw, I saw a film a while back, um, and I, I pulled it up here real quick, just, just talking about the, the political side of science. You know, in the political side of this this agenda and everything, um, Ben Stein made a. Uh, He's funny. Yeah, he made a movie called Expelled. Have mm-hmm. you ever seen it? No I intelligence uh, allowed. Mm-hmm. And kind of his whole thing was going to different pl- places, who were starting to question some of the holes that that they were finding and um, all that kind of thing, and seeing how if they started to disagree with Darwinian theory that they would lose grants, they would be kind of shut down, they'd be blacklisted, blackballed, yeah. all those kind of things. And this is how, on Wikipedia, this is how this film is described. Uh, it says, no, uh, no Intelligence Allowed is a 2008 American documentary-style propaganda film directed by Nathan Frankowski and, uh, and starring Ben Stein. Uh, and it goes on down here a little bit. It says, although intelligent design is a pseudo-scientific religious idea. Yes, the film and it's not religious it, at all. It presents it as science-based without giving detailed definition of the concept. Um, so, I mean, even, even just the review, like just saying what this movie is, it's automatically listed as propaganda mm-hmm. and saying that it's just a science, it's a, it's a religious film, you know, and all those kind of things. Well, and Stephen Meyer is listed on Wikipedia as a pseudo-scientist. 
And he considered that a step up because he said he used to be listed as a uh, theologian. He said, I don't know anything about theology. (laughs) But that's the thing is, you get get kind of blacklisted. But to to get back to the issue, um, I'm just a regular guy trying to figure out how to uh, understand that science speaks to my God, not against my God. And I want my kids to understand that. And so my kid, I mean, I got four boys. What boys does not like dinosaurs? I love them, man. Yeah. I mean, dinosaurs I, are I awesome. All, I always yeah. wanted to ride a triceratops. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Well, and that was one of those things where, you know, my kids began to ask questions when they were young, and they began to ask questions about dinosaurs. Well, what do you think, as we're going through the story of Noah's Ark, what do you think my kids asked uh, about Noah's Ark? Why didn't Noah let on the dinosaurs? Yes. And so what's the answer? He probably did. <laughs> he did let on the dinosaurs. Now, you know, we talk about the age of the earth. What I, I, I'm going to simplify this really quickly by saying that if you want to look into it, um, people like Stephen Meyer still kind of hold to an old earth view, even though they, they know, he, he affirms confidently that there is no foundation for evolutionary theory whatsoever that that an easy christian an intelligent mind a god of the bible is the only one that could do what we see in creation it all points to him and that's the beauty of it if science were truly about truth it would point to god mm-hmm. so when we look at the bible we can't be scared with our kids of talking about uh, i told you guys before i said i've got a book at home called a, a noah's ark a feasibility study where a guy uh, I can't remember what his credentials were, but basically he did this big study of what it would take, um, what it would take to uh, put all the animals on there. Now, there's a lot that goes into it, but basically he concluded that as much as a third of the ark could have been empty and still accomplished the task that he needed to be. Uh, why were why, why did the dinosaurs not exist long past that? Well, it was because the climate changed. Climate was much harsher. Why did God allow Moses to go from being a vegetarian to eating meat? Because the earth had just been stripped of everything. There wasn't much left. He was starting over. Uh, Many of the plants had gone extinct, and a lot of the animals couldn't survive in a harsh climate after the flood. There are answers to this. Now, you could spend weeks reading on this stuff. Answers in Genesis has a lot of videos and books on the subject. But I just want to challenge you that there, you know, science is as supportive of a young earth as it ever would be of an old earth. It's as supportive, if you look at it honestly, of dinosaurs existing with men as it is of this supposed, you know, four billion years ago or three billion or two billion that the uh, that they existed. And so as you begin to look at it, critically, you find all of the holes, but what you really begin to find is God. It honors him because you see him in it all if you can get through for me it's about teaching my kids to to think all the way through that i'm gonna throw a monkey wrench in here and you can speak on it to as much as you want what about carbon dating you got any, got any, got mm-hmm. any backdoor knowledge of carbon dating? because a lot of people will tell you oh we pulled this thing out of the ground and it's 30 million years old okay well you you just spoke about the the number one kind of misconception okay Carbon dating only works with um, organic life forms that have carbon or carbon-based organic life forms. And even in the theoretical view of how it works, it can only date things to 60 to 70,000 years or something somewhere along that lines um, because all of the, the half-life is too short. You can't date an organic organism uh, back past that. Um, radiometric dating using, uh, I think, like argon and some other items are what is used to supposedly date the Earth. The problem with that is, um, if you just, just want to look at the, the holes in it, let's just say, it, it, is it a questionable theory? Well, it has to be, number one, because you've devised a test that tells you how old something is that is current age of the earth, I think, is like 6.8 billion years. Is the old. They, here's how they age the earth. They test the age of a rock, and when they find the age of the rock, the oldest rock they've found thus far is how old the earth is today. Find an older one next week. Now that's how old the earth is because it has to be as old as the oldest rock. In order to understand how that works, well, number one, 
Here's a couple of assumptions. The assumption one, what they're measuring is the radioactive isotopes giving off or decaying and the rate that it gives off. So when you measure it in a controlled environment, it decays at a certain rate. Okay? Here's the assumption. That isotope decays at the same rate under all circumstances and all situations and nothing can affect it, period, no matter what. And that it's constant and not logarithmic. Exactly. And yet, we can only measure it for the last 150 years that we've been even been playing with this kind of technology. Okay? And yet, isn't, we're... So- isn't that like the... <clears throat> like on uh, light bulbs or something? Last 50,000 hours, and they tested it for 2,000 hours. Yes. Nobody, <laughs> nobody's ever run one for 50,000 hours. Yeah. Okay. They just kind of it's assume a big guess. that it's a big know. guess. Well, and here's some of the, here's some of the issues associated with that. Um, the, uh, there's a couple of assumptions. Number one, the parent compound because it decays from one compound to another. The parent compound starts out with a given number of radioactive isotopes, no matter what, all the time. Okay. But the problem is the only known source, like like we see them coming out of lava flows or things that occur. Uh, and so you can get uh, an eruption when new things are formed with lava as it settles out and you measure it. Um, you, nobody, you can't take a rock and go back to the beginning and verify that it had its full complement at the beginning. So that's an assumption. And all you need to falsify an assumption or even the potential is one instance when it wasn't correct. So they've gone... You know, guys at, at different, uh, obviously, Christian group, groups, typically. But Answers in Genesis is fond of going to take samples of known origin and sending them to secular labs to get testing so they can say, we didn't test it. We sent it to a secular lab. We just verified where it came from. Yeah. Okay. And so they have instances of them not having stuff. They have instances of them coming from a known situation like a, a given volcanic eruption or a lava flow or something that came out, they know when it started, and it measures 100,000 years old. But it's, you know, 10 years old or 50 years old or something to that effect. So you're making an assumption that it started with the same amount, it decays steady no matter what, and no outside circumstances can affect it. Well, outside, I mean, good Lord, the sun and rain affects how long anything lasts and how anything st- Nothing resists Sun, the rain, and the weather, or heat, or pressure. And these rocks have endured everything. Sun, wind, rain, heat, pressure. Not to mention the fact that there's no organized, controlled system for manufacturing them. We have no idea how they started. Uh, So there are lots of assumptions there that have to be made. And yet, like I said, according to Answers in Genesis, they've taken samples from known places and had them tested and they came up wrong. But here's the kicker. And I can't remember who the speaker was that I was listening to, but he said, the funny part was that when they're wrong, they're always wrong long. Mm -hmm. They're always older than what they are. Always older than what they are. They're never younger than what they're known to be. Yeah. And so, once again, how many situations do you have to falsify, to be able to falsify the theory when they're operating on the assumption that it's absolute? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um. And so you get the age of the earth issue there going on. Well, it's a questionable theory. It's not fact. Nothing that cannot be um, verified and recreated in a lab setting can be fact. It's historical science. Yeah. So there's your monkey wrench. There you go. Mm-hmm. So we, <laughs> this is, uh, we know this is a lot to kind of absorb in and, you might need to listen to this a couple of times. You know, I, I probably will have to go back and listen to this a couple of times myself. But in saying that, we do have to land the plane at some point here, Jonathan. And so, I guess let's land the plane this way because one of the one to me one of the reasons that we we did this was because we did have a listener who's a parent and was like, how do I how do I equip my kids and stuff? So, Robert, I ask you if you had like a few pointers to give to a parent, um, maybe some steps, maybe what some things they should do or or ways. Um, I, I loved what you said earlier when you said we only spend one day a week in the Bible. Well, we need to spend a lot more days a week in the Bible. But what's what's some things that maybe parents need to do or be open to to land this plane, I guess? Okay, a, a couple of pointers. Uh, number one, don't be scared of what 
and I'm put I'm using my fingers to make quotation marks here what science says okay science doesn't say anything so don't be scared of it fear is the number one thing that will have you uh, pull back and 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 you allow your faith to be weakened by what you hear over and over so don't be scared um, to look into things um, educate yourself because this is the number one weapon that people who do not believe in God and want to excise him from society, which includes your children and grandchildren, grandchildren's life, they're seeking to exclude him from all venues of life and indoctrinate people against the existence of God. This is their number one weapon, what mm-hmm. science says. So you owe it not just to yourself and your kids and your grandkids to educate yourself, which involves finding a few sources. So, uh, like I said, Stephen C. Meyer is a person that I like. He's very intelligent, and he's about 100 times better spoken. To be an egghead, he's an excellent speaker. You can find YouTube videos. I, I watched one today. Great guy. Um, uh, Signature in the Cell's book, uh, Darwin's Doubt is a book that, that he wrote that were really, really good books associated with, with some of this stuff. Answers in Genesis. It's a place you can visit if you want to go to their exhibit. Their super cool museum. Super cool, cool museum. Um, however, it's for your kids' purposes. It's geared. A lot of the videos are geared toward eighth grade level. But if you search around their website, you can find papers and things that are written at a really in-depth level. And what you will find is you can go and search. Um, the beautiful part is the internet is full of junk that that disses God and Christianity and everything that's good and right in this world. But you, with a, with a, a few search parameters, you can find these videos. So educate yourselves. And then number three is talk about these things. You know, I told you guys, but before we started, one of my um, kids came in the other day, and he's he's fourteen now. He came in, he was thirteen or fourteen when he did this. He came in and he said, "Hey, Dad, you remember?" Lucy, you know, you've heard Lucy, right? Lucy's the one of one of the supposed missing links. His dad, that we we talked about Lucy today in biology class or, or science class, and I said, yeah. Well, what they say? They said, well, she's a missing link, and she's you know all the stuff they tell you. And I said, well, what'd you think about that? And he said, Dad, they showed all of the bones, and they showed them in two colors. They showed the bones that they think were there versus the bones they actually found. And he said, you know, they only found like 10 to 15% of the bones. And I said, okay, so what do you think about that? He said, I think there's no way they could tell what that thing used to be. They're just guessing. And most of the skull was gone. And I said, that's exactly right, son. Don't be scared to challenge and be inquisitive and ask questions and teach your kids. If I was going to encourage anybody to do anything... It would be to teach your kids to be critical thinkers and not just accept our scholastic world today is information conveyors. We will tell you what to think. We don't tell you how to think. Teach your kids how to think. Super cool. Man, I wish we had like two more hours of this. Yeah, I've been here the whole time thinking my favorite color is blue, but it's only blue because somebody told me it was blue. You know, not my favorite color, but the blue itself, it's only blue because somebody said it was blue. Like somebody labeled it blue, and now I just call it blue because somebody labeled it blue way back then. I mean, that's kind of, that's a very simple form of what we're talking about here, but, but just because it's in science doesn't necessarily mean Um, you have to accept it for what it is. Just because people are saying that this is science or that Mm -hmm. this is fact doesn't mean that it is. You don't have to accept it. Go go do your own research. Yeah, and Share we'll uh, <clears throat> let's make sure to put answers in Genesis. Stephen Meyer, all these guys, a lot of links in our show notes. So go check out our show notes, and uh, we'll have links to quite a few different different places. Answers in Genesis is a lot of they have a lot of good stuff. Um, answer books they've got like four. Well, people need to understand that Answers in Genesis is not just an organization; it's an organization that employs. Um, scientists and people from all different uh, uh, realms of, of scientific study, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from whether you're, you're dealing with physics or you're dealing with astrophysics or you're dealing with molecular biology or, or whatever. And so it's a, it's a compilation of research that uh, shows you that science really points to God. 
if the heavens declare the handiworks, it's if you look into it truthfully, it's going to point you to God if you give it an honest look with uh and you allow God to be one of the possible answers. Yeah. Just don't exclude him and you'll see him. Yeah. All right. All right. Robert, thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, You're man. welcome, guys. I had a ball. I'm gonna I got a lot of things. I mean, it's, it's crazy because, like, I, I I like the idea of science. Uh, I've never been, like, a big science guy. So I'm sitting here, like I told you earlier, I kind of just was like, okay. <laughs> Creation was by God. I, I'm okay with that. So even some of this information is, like, a bit overwhelming for me because I'm like, wow. You know, I thought I could have a good conversation about this, and now I'm like, I've been so <laughs> shortchanging people it, it for goes, so much yeah, time. Yeah, it goes real deep real fast. <laughs> yeah, but uh, – <laughs> We appreciate you coming on, Robert. You're welcome. And, and you know what we want? We, we 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 ask you for this every time. This is going to create some questions in your head. It's going to create some questions that you want to discuss as a family. Uh, join that discussion. If you have something you want to talk about, send us an email, today at gmail.com. Enter, engage with us on social media. And if we don't know the answer, we'll be honest with you and tell you and maybe help point you in the right way or or get some get some people that know more than more than I do for sure. So uh, engage with us out there on social media and be a part of it and uh, see what you got and let's talk about this thing a little bit and uh, get other people talking about it. So absolutely, all right. I think we ought to get out of here. I'll probably so. All right, Robert. Thanks. Appreciate it. You're welcome, guys. Uh, thank fun. you all for listening. We're out of here. All right, bye guys. Bye.